Thank you for your singing. You can join me tonight in Revelation chapter 12, the revelation of Jesus Christ, chapter 12. Let's go to the Lord. Father, thank you that we have a refuge in you, the city of our God. We thank you that uh, we can rest in you, the knowledge of your Son, and to know that our sins are forgiven. We are frail and weak people, and we know that without you we are nothing, and we depend upon you, and you are a gracious, merciful God who helps your people. We need your help tonight as we look at your word, a a book that you say that we're blessed if we read it and study it, and yet a, a book that is mystifying at times, yet it's all important what you want us to study. So help us tonight to understand what is there. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to be talking a lot about Satan tonight, which I don't care to do at all. It's not my favorite topic. I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about him. I'd rather focus on God and his character and his ways, but Satan is a major character in Revelation chapter 12, so to adequately understand the chapter, we do need to know what the Bible says about him. First of all, this may be a surprise to some. I think many have, a, have just a wrong concept about uh, where Satan is, what he's doing, and what he's done in the past. Maybe they get it from movies or something. I don't know, but uh, he, he's generally presented as if he's in hell and he's ruling over hell. But the reality of it is he's not in hell right now. He's never been there. Scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 20, which, uh, you know, is a little ways off still, verses 7 through 10, that he will be there someday. He'll be sentenced to the lake of fire once his final rebellion against God and God's purposes and God's people is crushed at the end of the millennium. And when he is there, he's not the celebrated figure. He's not the one ruling everything there. He's not one who's in charge He's not there having all of his demons, you know, do what he tells them to do. Instead, that same chapter, Revelation 20, verse 10, says that he'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So instead of being a celebrated figure in hell, when he finally gets there, he'll be undergoing horrible, horrible punishment, the most horrible punishment ever inflicted upon any creature, any being at all. That is... Satan's future. But what is he doing now? Well, he currently uh, divides his time between two offices that he has. He has a heavenly office and an earthly office, you could say. Divides his time between two general activities as well. So on one hand, he does spend a lot of time roaming the earth, Scripture tells us. And even the the, the atmosphere, the air around the earth, he oppresses people. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. Peter writes that your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So that's one of his activities, and he's good at it. it he can do that, seeking people to devour. And one of the reasons is that of what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So he easily deceives people in this process of devouring them, looking to oppress people. Here's a verse about his activity in that regard, especially when it comes to the, to the lost. So the lost that are here, what's his goal for them? Well, the Bible tells us that he opposes and tries to block the preaching of the gospel and the spread of it and their reception of the gospel. Matthew 13, verse 19, that's the parable of the soils, you know, the four different soils. One of those soils, here's the interpretation, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes, that Satan comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That's talking about the one, the seed that was sown beside the road. Jesus interpreted that. So he 
He's seeking to thwart the spread of the gospel that way. Plus, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, that he does something else. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel. He oppresses individual people as well. Acts 10, verse 38 says that Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. So there's one of his offices, the the theater of his activity is earth and the, the atmosphere around the earth, the air around the earth, and that's how he is opposing and oppressing lost people. God's people have to be aware of this as well, that that's part of his activity and the realm of where he operates. That's Paul's uh, counsel to us in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. They're around, even in the atmosphere. So there's one office and major activity, group of activities, but on the other hand, he does spend time in heaven. So again, he's not in hell with his red outfit on and his pitchfork and tail and rejoicing when more people get there and all that. And he's not there yet. Around the earth, he spends time in heaven. And when he's in heaven, when he's at that office, he is there to constantly accuse believers before God, before God's throne. And of course, one of the most famous passages that illustrate that is Job chapter 1. We're not going to read it tonight, but you know the story there that Satan shows up before God's throne and begins to question Job's integrity, cast doubt on Job's integrity and casting doubt on his, his devotion to the Lord, slandering Job, really, in a sense. So we're familiar with that one, but here's another example of that in the Old Testament, Zechariah 3 verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So the point is that now Satan is doing that. He's ceaselessly berating God about the unworthiness of believers. He seeks to destroy the relationship that God's people have with their God. He tries to break the bonds that link believers to the Lord Jesus Christ with his accusations. And of course, there's no possibility that, of that ever happening. No one can snatch a believer out of the hands of Christ or the Father. Jesus says that, you know, in John chapter 10, 28 and 29, no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand or the Father's hand. But he tries So in summary, Satan works on earth to block the gospel, to turn God's children against the Lord, and he uses all kinds of of methods in that. He uses supernatural methods, he uses theological error, he uses philosophical teachings, ideological teachings, just to destroy the faith of God's people, hoping to rid the earth of those who love God so that this world, he really can be the ruler of a unified world here but he also works in heaven to turn God against his people. I mean, the bottom line motivation for Satan is this. He knows what's coming, the earthly future kingdom of Christ, and he desperately wants to prevent Christ from establishing that kingdom, even the form of it now that's in people's hearts as they embrace Christ and the gospel. He wants to thwart that, and he wants to stop the future millennial an even eternal form of the kingdom. So he has all these evil plans on the earth, around the earth, the atmosphere, in heaven. But Satan's evil plans will not succeed. Scripture already reveals that he is a defeated foe. I've mentioned this before. It goes all the way back to the first preaching of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. God pronouncing pronouncing a a curse upon the, the serpent for what he had done, causing the fall of mankind. And he says to him there in Genesis 3.15 that speaking about the future Messiah who has come, the seed of the woman, he will bruise you on the head. It's a way of saying he'll deal the death blow to you. He wins. 
And that defeat of Satan was sealed at the cross, all that Jesus did, which we're looking at this coming Sunday, the crucifixion. It's just that his sentence, though it's been pronounced and the defeat has been pronounced, it just the sentence hasn't been carried out yet. So all this activity is going on in earth and heaven. And he understands his destiny, but in spite of that, he nevertheless relentlessly continues to fight on heaven on both earth and in heaven, to fight this losing battle against God. Now, I said in previous lessons that this hatred of God and this war against God is a long-standing war, you know. But this long supernatural war of evil against righteousness, Satan against God, reaches its climax in the passage that we're looking at tonight. Revelation chapter 12. So where are we in our study? Not to review the whole book again, but in chapter 11, we we found the sounding of the seventh trumpet. It's the last trumpet of judgment, a a, a revelation of more judgments to come. And then in that seventh trumpet, there are going to be seven bold judgments poured out. And the effects of that seventh seventh trumpet and those bold judgments, that's coming not in this chapter, that's coming later. The effects are coming not until chapter 15. And there's even a final battle that we'll get to eventually in in Revelation chapter 19. But there's some intervening chapters before you get the effects of the seventh trumpet, and that's chapters 12, 13, and 14. So we're in this intervening section, and we find some review. We find a recounting of the beginning of the of what I call the longest war, the war of the ages, Satan's initial rebellion against God, his fall from heaven. We also find described the last battle that's going to occur during the tribulation. So we're in that chapter, part of those intervening chapters, the first one, chapter 12 tonight. Now, specifically in our last few times together in chapter 12, we saw in verses 1 to 6 some important characters that are part of all this drama that's going to take place in the future. We saw the woman who represents Israel. We saw the male child that she will produce or has produced. That represents Messiah, Jesus. We say the dragon. That's the figure that represents Satan, the one who hates righteousness and hates God and hates his ways and hates God's people, especially hates Israel. At the end of verse 5, you can look back just a little bit to what we've studied. The dragon was prevented, though, in his hatred of the male child. He was prevented from harming the male child born to the woman, Jesus, though he tried when Jesus was here on earth. He tried to prevent the birth of Jesus. He tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby, tried to stir up the religious leaders to arrest Jesus, thought the crucifixion was the end of Jesus. Problem is, he rose from the dead and then ascended back to heaven after the crucifixion and the resurrection. So the dragon was prevented from harming this male child. So that part of the passage was a, a little, little bit about something that happened in the past. And one more thing we saw last time, and again, there's a little bit of a jumping around of time things, but that's the flight of the woman. That's introduced here, the whole idea of the flight of the woman. That refers to Israel's future escape to the wilderness where God is going to protect her from the dragon. The dragon still hates Israel. But tonight we're looking at verses 7 and following, hopefully through verse 12. We'll see. This is where John is describing Satan's final assault on God. Before Christ comes back again, And we're going to divide this into three sections. So here's section one tonight. We'll call it the heavenly battle, the heavenly battle. Now keep in mind that we're looking at the future. Things are going to take place during the tribulation period, the seven years leading up to Christ's return. The second half of it is very important where the final judgments start being poured out and the flight of the woman is going to take place during that future period as the second half begins, somewhere around the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation, that flight takes place. This battle battle then in heaven that we're going to study, this heavenly battle takes place 
about the same time, or you could think of it in terms right before the battle, right before the, the flight of the woman. So that, we're going to look at it, it's in here so we can better understand even more clearly the rage of the dragon against the woman during this future period when she has to flee. The dragon, Satan, has been frustrated for centuries over the fact that he could not end the life and ministry of the male child because of the ascension back to heaven as the exalted Lord. So this future battle that we're starting in verse 7 here, this heavenly battle, is the culmination of of centuries of this frustration, this rage, because Satan couldn't have victory over Jesus when he was here. So here's verse 7. And there was war in heaven. This this speaking proleptically is the word for this. It's, It's a vision that John is seeing, and he's, and he's seeing as if it's happened, but it's yet to take place. There was war in heaven, Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. The dragon and his angels waged war. So as stated, this is referring to a war in heaven, heaven itself, this culminating battle at the end of centuries of frustration on Satan's part, trying to thwart the gospel and God's people and Jesus. This is a future end-time event. So yes, in one sense, this war, I've already said, has been going on for ever since the fall of Satan. We saw that pictured in Isaiah and Ezekiel, where he was initially, because of his pride and rebellion against God, Satan and, and many angels with him, evil angels that followed him, they were cast out from their positions in heaven. And that's what produced in heaven and Satan working in these two offices. You know, He's not there as the exalted angel anymore that he was. He just goes there to accuse God's people before God. And the rest of the time he's here on earth. So Satan and evil angels that follow him, opposing God. So it's been going on a long time. And there's examples of it. There's little pictures of it in the Bible For example, there's an interesting one in Daniel 10, so just a little bit of a side here before we go on. In Daniel 10, uh, demons, this is just to give you a picture of of the way it's been happening. It's just one little snapshot. Demons were trying to hinder the the ministry to Israel by some holy angels. And Daniel was concerned about that, and an angel came to Daniel to confront him, I mean to comfort him, excuse me, because of what he understood was going on and the, the thwarting of, the, of holy angels ministering to God's people, an angel comes to him, likely Gabriel, Gabriel, but here's what it says in Daniel 10, 12 and 13. This is very interesting. Then he, this angel, probably Gabriel, said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, your prayers. I've come in response to your words. But it took me a while to get here. I was delayed. Why? The prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's a way to refer to a demon. The prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. There was this fight going on. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. In other words, it was not until Michael showed up that came and helped that other angel that helped him prevail. Just a little snapshot of this, the kind of war and battle that's been going on that people couldn't see, but the war raging between supernatural beings in the heavenly sphere will reach its peak in the tribulation period, though. This future conflict will find Michael, again, and his angels, holy angels, waging war against the dragon. So Michael and the dragon, I mean, they go way back, is the way we would say it. They've known each other for a long, long time. They've battled before. So this battle we're looking at, that'll take place during the tribulation, this is not the first time that they've had to oppose one another. Here's another snapshot. This is actually in the New Testament. We get the snapshot. It's in Jude, verse 9. You know, Jude only has one chapter. So chapter 1, verse 9. Listen to what it says. Michael, the archangel, there we find out he's an archangel. 
when he disputed with the devil, argued about the body of Moses. He did not dare pronounce against him, the devil, a a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, and you find this in Deuteronomy 34, after Moses' death, Michael had to fight with Satan for the possession of Moses' body. I mean, Satan wanted it for some reason, not a good reason, some evil reason that we don't know, and Michael wasn't going to let him have it. And we find in Deuteronomy 24 that in the Lord's power, Michael won that contest, and subsequently it tells us that the Lord then buried Moses. Again, a couple of snapshots. And like I said, in Jude 9, he's called, this figure Michael is called an archangel. That means he's a, possibly the highest-ranking angel. And he's the leader of the heavenly army that takes on the dragon and his army. In our verse 7, his army, the dragon's army, is just referred to as his angels. That means unholy fallen angels, demons. Now you go back to that verse and you, if you look at the grammatical construction of it, if we had time to do that, the phrase of, in Greek, the Greek text there indicates that Satan, the dragon, is the one who, who started this battle. So they, they, they storm the armies of heaven and they... They started, you could translate it this way, Michael and his angels had to fight the dragon. Why? Because Satan and his army attacked. This is all in the future. Look at the repetition of the phrase, waging war, waged war. That repetition is is important. It's indicating this was a severe, this will be a severe all-out battle. Much bigger than the fighting over the body of Moses or... The thing about having to help Gabriel overcome some demon over Persia, this this is severe because this is desperation on Satan's part. Satan will desperately fight to prevent Christ from doing what comes next in God's plan, what's coming up, the second coming and his victory and his establishing of the kingdom. So here they are, Michael... John is seeing this. I mean, what a sight. Michael and all the holy angels fighting against the dragon and unholy angels. The Bible doesn't really tell us how angels fight. I mean, I don't know how you try to picture that, even when it was Michael helping Gabriel or Michael fighting with the devil over Moses' body. I mean, it's not arm wrestling and stuff like that. We don't know how they fight. We have very limited knowledge of the heavenly realm can't really speculate, but I do appreciate the comment by Henry Morris. Listen to this, what he says. With what weapons and by what tactics this heavenly warfare will be waged is beyond our understanding. Angels cannot be injured or slain with earthly weapons, and such physical forces as we know about are not able to move spiritual beings. But these beings do operate in a physical universe, so there must exist powerful physical and spiritual energies of which we yet can have only vague intimations, energies which can propel angelic bodies at superluminary velocities through space and which can move mountains and change planetary orbits. It is with such energies and powers that this heavenly battle will be waged and the spectators in heaven are going to watch in awe. That's the heavenly battle is coming. In any case... Satan is going to fail again to be victorious. That brings us to the second section. We'll call it the heavenly purging. The heavenly purging, verse 8. The Bible just says it so, strict, so simply, and they were not strong enough. Okay. Meaning, Satan and his armies, they're not going to be strong enough. The conjunction and there has the sense of and yet or but. So and yet, even though this is going on and they, they initiated this battle, they started it but they're not strong enough. Now, the term strong enough has an absolute sense to it. It's talking about being completely victorious, completely prevailing over something. And so it's put in the negative. Satan is not this way. He was not victorious, not strong enough. It's a way of announcing, a negative way of announcing his total defeat. In fact, Satan will suffer such a complete defeat At this time in the future, verse 8 continues on, 
Look what it says. There was no longer a place found for them in heaven. In that future day, the dragon and his minions will find themselves excluded, finally, without any further access to the heavenly scene anymore. He's doing it now, but after this, no more. Every, as one person said it, every inch of heaven is going to be cleaned out. Every inch of heaven is going to be purged of every single fallen demon, angel, and it will be a permanent purging. So from that moment on, Satan will never again accuse believers before God's throne. That part of his tactic is going to be taken away from him because he's going to be banished to earth. The problem is when that happens, Satan's full fury then is going to explode on earth. That's why this is all happening in the midpoint of the tribulation. That's why the last three and a half years are called the great tribulation. Why does the woman have to flee? Because of this. It's the great tribulation. During that last period, Satan's full power will be directed at anyone belonging to God on earth, especially Israel. Now, our passage goes on in verse 9 to tell us about the force of this purging, the force of the dragon's expulsion from heaven. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. That verb, thrown down, you find it in the New Testament used in connection with judgments. Even when the Christ talks about you know, pruning the, the vine, the branches are thrown into the fire. It's, it's a picture of judgment. It's the same term. In Revelation, it's used 26 times, always in connection with some various kind or phase of judgment, as it is here. In our verse, there's a threefold repetition of it. Was thrown down, was thrown down, were thrown down. Again, that's emphasizing just how severely the defeat of Satan is going to be and the purging of heaven, how complete it's going to be. Now, verse 9 does do something for us. I guess, you know, it's like to avoid any possibility. Now, who are we talking about now? (laughs) No possibility of mistaken identity of this leader of the fallen army because we find him identified five ways. Look at him. First, he's called the great dragon. We've seen that term great before, megas. So here it's repeated again. And in doing that, John's just reiterating the absolute extreme cruelty and mercilessness of this supernatural being. Second, he's called the serpent of old. What is that that description reminding us of? Back in the garden. The fall of the human race in Genesis chapter 3. By his craftiness, Satan, in the form of the serpent, deceived Eve. Yeah, it's that one. Third, he's the one who's called the devil. That's in our verse. That's the Greek term diabolos. It comes from the term diabolo, which means to, it's a verb that means to slander, to accuse somebody falsely. It even has the nuance in doing that that you separate people from one another. So that's who, that's who this is. Satan is the ultimate slanderer. He's the ultimate false accuser. He accuses, has been accusing, is now, and will be up until this moment, accusing men to God, slandering them, seeking to separate them from God. Yeah, it's that one, the devil. And he even accuses God to men. That's what he did with Eve. Cast doubt on God's integrity. He stirs up Men against men, even, by slander. Fourth, he's the one called Satan. The Greek term is satanas. It's actually a transliteration. Transliteration is where you take a a word in another language and you just sort of give it your... We do that in English. We take another word in another language and we use English letters to spell it. It's called a transliteration. This is a transliteration, santanus, of a Hebrew term. Guess what the Hebrew term is? Satan. So there is this Hebrew word, Satan. They took that, put Greek letters on it, made it Satanus. 
And the Hebrew word means adversary. So here, it's just a fitting name. He is the adversary. He's the ultimate evil enemy of God and God's people. And fifth, there's another description, not so much a title, but it's a description. He's the one, it says, who deceives the whole world. Deceives is the word uh, planao, and and it's it's the idea of going astray in an active form. It means to lead somebody astray or to mislead them. So Satan's a master of that. He's a master at misleading people, causing them to go astray. He has this uncanny ability to lead people astray, to deceive them. We saw it with Eve, but it wasn't just Eve. We see it, uh, we see it applied to other people in Scripture. It says that about Judas. Remember in John chapter 13, about the Last Supper? Verse 2 of John 13 says there that that point came. It says in the supper, it says, during supper, supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Christ. Satan, this one, is the one who manipulated and deceived Judas to carry out this betrayal. He's the same one who, th- who tried to mislead Peter. He tried to undercut the faith of Peter. Remember that scene, Luke 22, verse 31 Jesus tells Simon this, Simon Peter, says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. I mean, Satan just said, let me have him. I can can mislead people. I'm good at it. I can can destroy his faith. But note in our text, John doesn't mention particular names like Eve and Judas and Peter and others. John says the object of Satan's deception is the whole world, ultimately, ultimately. That world includes all of the earth's inhabitants. It it includes all the political structures that are here, governments that are here, everything that characterizes society. At this future time, more than ever, all will be deceived. That's true now. It's going on now at, at, at some level. I mean, this is part of his activity. That's why Paul talks about the world in this way. This is the world now, 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. That's part of his methodology, to lead people straight now. But the specific point in Revelation here is that this deception by Satan is what is going to dominate the world once he's purged from heaven and he's thrown down to earth and all his demons. He's going to dominate the world with this deception, the second half of the tribulation, because now, no longer allowed in heaven, he's going to mount at that time his last desperate assault against God and God's people. We're going to see this later coming up that he has an agent called the false prophet, and he has an associate, the Antichrist. And, and, and through his agent, the false prophet and the, and the Antichrist, Satan is going to then deceive those who dwell on the earth. Listen to what Revelation 13 verse 14 is going to say. This is coming up next chapter. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. There's going to be miraculous things happen to mislead people. And then we even find something else. This is not coming up till Revelation 16 or Revelation 19. But in the end, as it gets very close to the Lord coming back, deceitful demons under Satan's control are going to gather the world's armies, mislead them, deceive them, and bring them together for the battle of Armageddon. So this has been going on a long time, him doing this. It goes all the way back to the garden duping the human race throughout its history. And this is Satan's ongoing, habitual, continual activity now when he's here on earth and it's going to be his tactic in the tribulation. But nevertheless, he doesn't win and the purging of heaven will be complete. Look at the rest of verse 9. This one we've just described was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So this excommunicated demon host arrives on earth with their evil commander 
and they are going to add immeasurably to the horror of the second half of the tribulation. In fact, there's already demons here. You look back in chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, we saw that some demons were mentioned there, and they were sort of belched out of the abyss. They're already roaming the earth. That's an innumerable number. Also in chapter 9, verses 13 through 16, it actually mentions there's another group, 200 million formerly bound demons. So already demons have been belched out of the, uh, of the abyss. There's the 200 other formerly bound demons. Satan and his host cast out to earth. What does that add up to create an unimaginable holocaust of evil? And it lasts for those last three and a half years, which agrees with a little phrase. If you look down at verse 12, look at the last phrase of verse 12. He can only pull all this off for a short time. Now, again, this is all prophecy. It's being stated proleptically is the style of writing. It's stated as if it's happened because it's a vision John was allowed to see, but in reality, it's the future. So just summarize all that. Satan's the accuser of our brethren, of the saints, as stated previously. He has had access to heaven to pull that off until this future battle transpires, and it'll be a heavenly purging. The last section, the heavenly celebration. The heavenly celebration. The defeat of Satan and his demon host and the purging of their evil presence from heaven forever is going to trigger, shock, an outburst of celebration and praise there in heaven. Of course, look at verse 10. John's allowed to see this ahead of time too. He's going to be there when it happens, but now he's seeing it ahead of time when he saw the vision. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven. This is an outburst of praise, and there are several of these in the book of Revelation. But here, who, who is it? Who is singing out so loudly this song of praise, if you will? Well, it's a, it's a collective voice, this loud collective voice. What we can say is it's not the angels. And the reason is you look ahead and you find the phrase, our brethren, right in the middle of verse 10. Angels don't use that phrase about one another. They don't refer to humans as their brethren. So this is not the, the heavenly host with a loud voice. These worshipers are the many, many redeemed, glorified saints already in heaven by this point, watching all this, including the martyrs that, that were mentioned back in chapter 10. What's interesting, we already know the, the martyrs have, have some, they've already warmed up for this singing because it says back in chapter 10, 6 verse 10, they've already cried out with a loud voice for their vindication. So they got a good warm-up for this one, this loud collective voice proclaiming this praise in a, in a hymn-like form. And so because of that, we can, we can really divide it into three stanzas like we would do a hymn. So here's the first stanza. It all has to do with the arrival of God's kingdom and Christ's authority. Look at verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. That little adverb now introduces the song. They're singing as if final victory, it's done. It's certain. I mean, once Satan is kicked out, the saints will begin rejoicing. And they rejoice in these three entities that are listed here that are all connected with the phrase, of our God. So if you look down and see, of our God, that actually goes with all three of these the salvation of our God, the power of our God, and the kingdom of our God. So first, they rejoice that salvation has come. This term salvation here is carrying the connotation of victory. It's salvation in the sense of victory. It's happened. It's victory over the dragon. This is just one more step of what God's plan has been all along. This is what they're singing about. One more step leading up to the establishment of God's kingdom on earth. God's going to be vindicated. God's people are going to be vindicated. And you know, and according to Romans 8, you know what else is going to be? Uh, the curse is going to removed, be removed off creation even. 
Creation is groaning. I mean, what a celebration over all this victory, this salvation. The salvation of God. They're going to sing about God, the power of God. That's our, our, the Greek term dunamis, where we get dynamite. It refers to a, a, a physical power in this sense. It's actually referring to God's omnipotence, His all-powerfulness, His triumphant, sovereign power that crushes all opposition and will complete His plan and establish the kingdom. They rejoice over that. They rejoice then over the fact that the kingdom of our God has come. I mean, it's still to come when they're singing, but it's so certain they can sing it this way. There's a temporal phase that we'll see in Revelation chapter 20, the millennial kingdom, and then there's an eternal phase of it in chapter 21 and 22. So the song looks forward to this consummation as if it's already happened. What else are they rejoicing over? The authority of his Christ, his anointed one. Now, the term authority here comes from a word that also means power, but it's not the dunamis word. It doesn't mean that kind of physical power. It's a different kind of power, so it's translated authority. It's ministry authority and reigning authority. This authority was given to the Son by the Father, and Jesus says that several times. In John chapter 17, verse 2, we saw it there. Praying to the Father, you gave me authority over all flesh and to all whom you have given me that I may give them eternal life. Matthew 28, verse 18, before the ascension, Jesus spoke, remember, about the Great Commission. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. They're singing about this now because it's going to become evident. The promised Messiah, the anointed one of God, the eternal son, is going to rule with authority in the future kingdom of God. So certain, though yet future. They speak of it as being in the past tense. Well, this stanza one continues, verse 10. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. You know what's interesting about this? All those names that I went through earlier about Satan, the labels that we have for him and the titles and the the nuances and things, part of that includes the idea that he is He does slander people. He accuses the saints. But this is the only time in the New Testament where he's actually called this the accuser. It's right here. But who are the brethren? They're rejoicing. The accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. This is a reference to the one still alive on earth at this future time of Satan's casting down to earth. Once he's cast out of heaven for good by Michael's victory, the devil's heavenly role of accusing those saints that they are calling our brethren, he's not going to do this anymore. He's not allowed here to do that anymore. That ends. So they're rejoicing over that. It's been going on day and night. In an uninterrupted manner, he's been complaining against the saints, the brethren, But this says that the day is coming when his mouth, his accusing mouth, is going to be stopped forever, cast down to earth. But another role then is going to take over, the persecuting role. And that's going to intensify, as I've already said. So on one hand, it grieved this heavenly host to know that the suffering brethren on earth were the subject of the devil's continuous slanderous accusations, but they're rejoicing that the defeat of Satan by Michael has put an end to all those accusations forever. All that stanza one brings us to stanza number two of this great celebratory hymn, verse 11. And it actually is now introducing, there's also another victory they were singing about, not just Michael's victory. There's another victory that they wrote a verse about, you know, a victory over Satan It's the earthly victory of the saints who identify with Christ all the way to the end of their lives. They're rejoicing over that as a victory, verse 11. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. This is a reference now to the martyrs that are going to happen, the martyrdom during that time of persecution in the future. People are going to lose their lives because they are followers of Christ. 
during this intense time of persecution once the purging of heaven has taken place. This is still the second half of the tribulation. Just before the inauguration of the kingdom on earth, no heavenly accusations going on. The accuser's not in heaven anymore. He did that prior to being purged out. But after that, they are going to face the worst that the dragon has to offer when he's cast down to earth. But what is important is that these saints remain faithful. They overcome Satan because they're followers of Christ. Or as it's worded here, because of the blood of the Lamb. They believe the gospel. And the divine word to which they, oh, faithfully, it says, bear testimony. They're not running. They're not backing down. And because of that, martyrdom is what awaits them at this stage of the book's chronological progress. This is a victory over Satan, but it's a spiritual victory. He couldn't stop him from believing. They won this victory. Even in the terrible experience of martyrdom, they'll win it. They're not going to defeat him by all the things you see on Christian television sometimes or movies or whatever, you know, exorcisms and, and formulas that they're spitting out and binding Satan and rebuking him and all that. That's not what they're doing. No incantations. I mean, that's really ridiculous. Satan is far more powerful than all of that, than any human, all those little tricks and gimmicks. He's impervious to those. And it's not their personal power. It's not their own physical strength or anything that these tribulation believers defeat Satan. No. What's the only basis for this kind of victory that the heavenly host is going to be celebrating? It's the kind that the same author, John, wrote about in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. It's that kind of strength. 1 John 4, 4, you are from God, little children, and you have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world. They had Christ the Spirit of God living within them. That applies to these future saints. In dependence upon the Lord, they are going to persevere through persecution, remaining faithful to Christ. And they won't just keep the faith. They will boldly take a stand for Christ and bear testimony to Him. And the rest of verse 11 says, even to the point of death. Verse 11 says, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. What? Heroism, that is, these saints. They'll put their lives on the line out of loyalty to Christ. You know, there have been saints of God throughout church history that have had that, that resolve, suffered persecution. There are those today. The Apostle Paul, though, had, is one that we can find in Scripture. He had the a- a- attitude about death and life. Just listen to some of his statements. Acts 20, verse 24. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He was like that. Acts 21, verse 13. They didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. Here's what he told them because it's not, not safe for him there, Acts 21, verse 13. I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Philippians 1, verse 20. Here was his desire. He says that he would not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. There are a lot of those in church history. Well, in this future time, these future saints will be like that. They'll not love their life, their earthly life. They will consent to die, possibly even a violent death, rather than take back or relinquish their profession and fidelity, faithfulness to Christ. That is how Satan lost, as far as they're concerned. They overcame him that way. Well, the passage concludes with stanza three. And this is 
just a final note of praise and celebration over the expulsion of the dragon. And, and there's also a warning here. I mean, once he's down there, <laughs> warning. Verse 12, for this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. For this reason, what reason? That's pointing back to the, the defeat of Satan and the triumph of the saints, the heavens and those who dwell in them, and it's referring to a, the word dwell there has to do with a permanent abode, so here it's referring to the, to, um, the angels, the holy angels, that's their permanent abode. They're going to have special reason for all this rejoicing because they can look around and Satan and his hordes are, are absent. But the song goes on to give us sober warning to those on the earth. I can almost hear this in a minor key or something. Verse 12, woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has come down to you having great wrath. You may remember the other guy's teaching pointed out the woes that we're finding. There's chapter 8, verse 13, I think it is. There's, there's three woes going to be mentioned, and this is not one of them. Okay, this is a side woe, okay? <laughs> this is a, another woe. It's not one of the three big woes. And the reason is we know that the three big woes are from God, and the objects are the rebellious earth dwellers. Woe to them. So this is not that. This is another kind of woe. And all those other woes, that we're going to have to wait to see those when we get to the bold judgments, chapter 16. They're all sent to the non-Christians of the world, God's judgment, the rebellious earth dwellers. Instead, this pronouncement concerns Satan's hostility to the people of God. So specifically, this woe is making the point that very bad times will face the inhabitants of earth because someone new has moved into the neighborhood. You ever had that happen and just things change? <laughs> well, this is the ultimate version of that. I mean, if you've ever thought, well, there goes the neighborhood. Well, they're thinking it on earth at that time. Heaven purged of all that foulness. Where is it on earth? A new full-time inhabitant at least for the three and a half years. And when he gets there, he is so filled with rage. He knows it's his last great campaign. And so that provokes in him the utmost intensity of anger against mankind. We find a reference to that in Mark chapter 13, verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. I mean, this is unique. Now, the term for wrath here, this wrath that he has, is thumos, and there's another term for wrath in the New Testament, orge, like in Ephesians where it says, you know, be angry but don't sin. It's a word for anger. They don't mean the same. They have different sort of connotations. This one, thumos, is the more turbulent of the two Greek terms. This refers to a violent outburst of age, of rage. It's, it's an emotional response, not a rational one. Here's what the commentator John Phillips says about it. Satan is now like a caged lion, enraged beyond words by the limitations now placed upon his freedom. He picks himself up from the dust of the earth, shakes his fists at the sky and glares around, choking with fury for ways to vent his hatred and his spite upon humankind. What a terrible time that's going to be, the great tribulation. I mean, God's been pouring out judgment. We've been studying that. It gets worse, but it has been happening. So in addition to all that, Satan arrives, adding all his fury. And like I said, he knows this is it. His time is short, the rest of verse 12, knowing that he only has a short time. That corresponds to the three and a half years. It's getting close to the Lord coming. The beast of the sea reigning. We'll get to chapter 13. Satan immediately enthrones the beast of the sea after he's cast out of heaven. This will be all the time Satan has left before Christ assigns him to the abyss for a thousand years. 
So there's the battle with the angel, the heavenly battle. There's the heavenly purging that's the result and the heavenly celebration that's the result as well. This removal of the dragon from heaven is, is sort of like, is one of some steps that are leading to his total final demise. So this is one, but then at the end of the tribulation, he's going to be thrown into that abyss for a thousand years. We'll see that in chapter 20, verse 3. He'll not be able to see the nations any longer. It says that after then, after that, he's going to be released for a brief time, and he'll deceive the nations, chapter 20, verse 8, that are in the four corners of the earth. But in the end, God takes the devil who deceived others, his angels, throws them all into the lake of fire with the two notorious deceivers, the beast and the false prophet. The three of them, along with all the demons, tormented day and night forever and ever. I was just thinking about what we can rejoice over now, some things from this. Now, we know what he's doing now. He's working at his two offices. When he's in the heavenly office, his demons are here. I don't know when he shows up here and how that happens. He's not omnipresent. Making accusations, that's going on about all of us if we love Christ. It's something to rejoice over now to know that his accusations don't carry weight with God. Accusations against us and can carry weight with other people but not with God. Isn't that, isn't that comforting? No matter what, Satan... I mean, he'll say true things about you even. It's almost as if God says, I know. But Romans 8.1 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 1 John 2 verse 1 says, if anyone sins, we have an advocate, a lawyer, with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. It's as if, I mean, it's not really like this, but it's, it's as if, metaphorically, Satan make his, his accusations, but there's the lawyer going, I know, but I paid for that. It's done. That's why Paul could write these words in Romans 8, 33 and 34. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody can. God is the one who justifies. Who's the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us. The accusations don't work, but he's bent on doing them anyway. We can rejoice over that. We can just rejoice over the fact that Satan is ultimately a defeated foe. The sentence has been passed. It's just not carried out yet. And the unshakable foundation of that reality is Christ's defeat of him at the cross. So Colossians 2.15 says this, that Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Christ the Son. At the cross, he was totally defeated. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 2.14, through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. So Christ Cross work, atoning work on the cross is the foundation for this reality that Satan is ultimately defeated. And, and the sentence is going to be carried out. It is certain. Romans 16 verse 20 even has a, a little benediction that's like that. It's a word of encouragement, Romans 16 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan. He'll do it. That's why we love to sing the words of Martin Luther's great hymn. The mighty fortress is our God. Remember the one verse, the prince of darkness, grim as Satan, Diabolos. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him, meaning when it's time. We can rejoice all over all that. He's a defeated foe. There's no condemnation. But at the same time, Scripture tells us to be sober about all this. We have a responsibility because of the fact that Satan is active right now. So how do we, how do we stand against his, the things he does? Well, it starts with what Scripture calls taking on the helmet of salvation. You want to be protected? It starts there, Ephesians 6.17. That's a way to refer to embracing the gospel. 
Take the helmet of salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5.8. Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, you must know Christ as Savior to have this assurance. But then once saved, we find warnings and counsel in Scripture to believers about Satan to be wise and sober. Listen to Paul's counsel, 2 Corinthians 2.11. See that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan because we're not ignorant of his schemes. We know he's active through methods, supernatural methods, but ideologies and false teaching and the opinions of the world. And don't, don't be ignorant of that. Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Ephesians 4.27, don't give the devil an opportunity. I mean, our flesh is there. He loves to, to use our, our weak flesh in moments of temptation. Don't give him opportunity. James 4, verse 7, James write this, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. We don't have to fear him. And here's the bottom line of our dealing with Satan now. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What are they? We're destroying speculations, all those error things that Satan is spreading right now. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We take our stand on the truth. We believe the truth. We embrace the truth. We apply the truth. We stand on that and we seek to obey Christ. That's our weapon we so yeah, we do have to be sober. He's not defeated yet. He's a defeated foe, but the sentence has been carried out, still active. Be saved, be sober, resist, don't give him opportunity, be wise. The scripture, take a stand on it, know it. One final takeaway from all this, it has to do with just the courage of those future saints. That ought to inspire us to stay faithful now. We're not experiencing that. But what we are having to deal with now, we do have a responsibility to be faithful and to take a stand for Christ in this world and to stay faithful to Him. And so we have some instruction about that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 21 to 24. It's just told us about Christ and He he had victory over the grave, and he ascended to heaven. He's our great high priest. And it says in Hebrews 10, verse 21, Since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to him with a sincere heart and full of assurance of faith. I mean, draw near to Christ through prayer and the study of the word, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. But listen to what it says in verse 23. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We are called upon that. All believers are called upon to hold fast the confession, take a stand, not ungraciously and unwisely, but we take a stand for what is true. We confess our hope without wavering because he who promised is faithful. And one more thing it tells us to do, and don't forget one another, let's stimulate one another to love and good deeds while we're taking our stand in this world. So the heavenly battle, the heavenly purging, the heavenly celebration divided into some stanzas and some things that we can rejoice over and a reminder that we need to be faithful and take a stand. Let's pray for ourselves in that regard. Also, I want to pray and give thanks to the Lord for, for Ryan Swaim coming through surgery so well, the triple bypass now in recovery. You may have seen that in email today. And I want to rejoice over that and thank the Lord for that and pray for his good recovery after that triple bypass surgery. And we're going to pray for, for Jim. This is your last time with us. Moving up to Virginia, Virginia, Richmond. He's got family up there. And we're glad you've been here, Jim. We're going to pray for God's continued blessing on you too. Okay. Father, thank you for this, this picture of your power and your plan unfolding and the reality that Satan can't thwart anything. And our failures, our sin doesn't thwart anything. We're so thankful that there's no condemnation in Christ and we ultimately have nothing to fear. I mean, the worst thing that can happen to us is that we die and go to heaven. 
So Lord, help us to hold fast our confession, not to be fearful. Lord, I do pray for anyone here that needs to take on the helmet of salvation to start their walk with Christ from the very beginning that, I, that needs to have their sin forgiven by embracing Christ, resting in Him as their only hope for that. Open their hearts to believe. Thank you for the good news about Ryan. Thank you for protecting him through this surgery. And Lord, I pray that, uh, I'm so glad that you, you, you caught this that was going on in his heart and it could be dealt with in time through this surgery. Thank you for that. And pray you'll strengthen him now, his body to recover. Give him great encouragement as he lies there for these days to recover, helping to think about you and helping to be encouraged by how good you are to him. Use this, his trust in you and your graciousness to him. Use this in the lives of all those around him that he is concerned about. Thank you for for Jim and his time here in our church family. I pray that for him now that he moves to Richmond, that you'll guide and direct him and lead him to a, a good church family and body of believers and help him to continue to grow in his love for you and your people. Protect him, meet all of his needs. In Christ's name, amen.